Hello and welcome to another episode of the Social Review Podcast. I'm your host, Jasper, at Jasper underscore CH on Twitter. And joining this week, we've got... Joe, at Steamed Hams on Twitter. And Matthew Lawrence, at Danton's Head. Matt, uh, thank you so much for coming on to the podcast. Uh, Matt is the founder and director of Commonwealth, um, a think tank we have previously interviewed on the podcast, who Joe spoke to uh, in July last year. Um, what a long time ago, eh? What have you and Commonwealth been up to since since then, since episode six of the podcast? Yeah, well, yeah, it's a pleasure to be back again. Um, and yeah, as you say, it's uh, been a long political lifetime, uh, even though less than a year. It was uh, So what have we been up to? It was actually our first anniversary on the weekend. Um, and we, we were sort of... Congratulations. Thank you very much. Um, <laughs> and it was a sort of you know, a wild birthday party. Um, <laughs> but we, no, so we were counting up what we'd done. And so we put out 38 reports over the past um, year. So we've been pretty busy. Um, but a lot of our focus has been in and around uh, the Green New Deal um, as a sort of structural transformation of the economy to shift from an extractive to sustainable and, and just economy by design. And then also questions around sort of the future of the company, future of ownership of some fundamental assets, whether it's data to land to natural resources. And I think so obviously post-December um, have been sort of thinking through and, and you know, post sort of the acceleration of the COVID crisis, um, how how that sort of agenda, which you know hasn't changed, but how it sort of maps on to a changing landscape, I guess. And so, sort of a couple of our core projects going forwards is obviously like a lot of people thinking through a sort of the COVID conjuncture uh, lens, as as Keir Milburn has called it. Um, one, what does the Green New Deal look like in terms of a just recovery and a transformative recovery? And then two, what's the future of democratic public ownership? Uh, not just looking at some of the sort of more traditional sectors that people like we own have campaigned on, whether it's railways, buses and the like. But I think we're sort of focusing quite a lot on the sort of new frontiers of the economy. So whether that's data, digital infrastructure, what are the commanding heights of the 21st century economy and how can we sort of bring those under social control and democratic power. And commoning the company is your new report. So could you talk a little bit about what that is? What does it mean to common the company? Yeah, so this was released uh, a week or two ago, and the core argument is that the company, uh, and in particular the corporation, which is sort of the legal structure which enables capital investment, labour investment to be coordinated to shape production overwhelmingly for, for profit, but there are other ways the corporation can be organised. The corporation is the original sort of public-private partnership, if you if you like, so the powers, the legal privileges that the corporation has around, say, limited liability, around sort of separate legal personhood, around a whole series of things which basically enable the company and the corporate sort of structure to organise production, are basically rooted in and organised by public power, backed up by the state, backed up by sort of legal encodings. If you look at the work of someone like uh, Katerina Pistol and her book, uh, looking at how the law codes capital. And our argument is that if you look at the company as essentially an institution that's deeply public, it's at the moment organised in a way in which capital rules, in which the coordinating rights within the company, within the firm, are basically monopolised via capital and by capital's agents, so whether that's shareholders or managerial power. 
But actually, we should think about the company not as something that is dominated and controlled by only one stakeholder capital, but actually as a, a democratic commons, a set of overlapping stakeholders who have democratic voice, which is under social control, in which the underlying resource of the company's productive potential rooted in sort of labour power is not exhausted and extracted for external sort of benefits, but actually managed as a sort of generative institution of production, of care, of sort of you know, mutuality, as opposed to a very hierarchical, extractive, financialized vehicle. So the report was sort of saying in the light of COVID, which is obviously putting immense pressure um, on sort of a number of companies, um, but in general has highlighted the fact that a lot of corporates have been turned into these sort of engines of wealth extraction with a big focus on distributing earnings and sort of borrowing to give money to shareholders and executive management rather than investing in their workforce, investing in the company. It's about how can we use that crisis as a moment to sort of systemically rethink the company so that it emerges democratic and sustainable by design rather than sort of recapitulating some of the old crises, the old failures, the old inequalities that are currently hardwired into the legal ownership and managerial structures of the corporation. So in your recommendations, you have both um, sort of social wealth funds as well as sort of recommendations for democratisation at a more um, sort of the company level. Um, What are the differing roles of both these kinds of initiatives and how do you see them complementing each other? Yeah, so I think they, as you say, they're sort of slightly distinct but overlap. And I guess their core is around sort of extending social control, democratic power over sort of production and sort of the corporate form as opposed to sort of capital's private rule. And I think it's sort of worth sort of stepping back and sort of placing it within the context of sort of the sort of economics of COVID, if you will, which seems to be sort of threefold. One is this sort of emergency first stage in which the sort of core programs because of core sort of goal of public policy was to try and demobilize as far as possible sort of all parts of the economy bar sort of scaling up healthcare capacity and essential workers and obviously there's you know that's where the furloughing scheme came in business loan scheme etc etc and obviously there's you know there's some big gaps there and there's some problems around how sort of a lot of the design seems to be sort of rewarding rentiers within the economy but not necessarily providing universal security to everyone but nonetheless there's that first stage of like how do you demobilize the economy there's a second stage of, okay, well, once the economy has been broadly demobilised, how can you sustain that um, with this immense sort of shock, this sort of, you know, sort of a shock to the fundamental institution of capitalism, sort of labour and capital's relation and sort of our relation to nature as sort of conduit within that? How do you maintain that hibernation for as long as sort of is, you know, public health uh, demands? And I think, you know, that's that's a sort of key key stage of, uh, debate right now and I think we've sort of moved into stage two and then the third stage is how do we sort of have a sort of ambitious reconstruction that doesn't just uh, reinflate the inequalities the hierarchies and injustices of our pre-existing economy and economic model and so all the sort of problems and dysfunctionalities that has and the inequalities it generates but actually have a sort of reconstruction of something new something that's democratic and sort of hardwise into it pluralism voice sort of a new embroidery of sort of uh, control within the economy and I suppose how the sort of two relates of the social wealth fund in a way is saying well look we've got this sort of peculiar economic moment in which indeed it's probably unprecedented in which there's been this deliberate demobilization a big shock to demand as a result due to sort of deliberate government policies and as a result, you've got obviously sort of collapse into a whole range of, sort of uh, asset prices from you know, sort of oil prices to um, you know, equity in particular. So the Social Wealth Fund 
is an example of saying, well, actually, we've got this combination of very low asset prices, but at the same time, very low borrowing costs, and borrowing costs are likely to remain very low for a long time, and you've got sort of the capacity of the state to manage the sort of cost of debt fairly. So it's a chance to say, well, actually, there's a moment here where you can expand public wealth by borrowing over the long term to invest to buy up a whole broad portfolio of assets, which extends social wealth, which turns and transfers what is privately held unequal wealth into sort of social wealth over the long term. And as and when the potentially the economy reinflates a little bit, you'll get a sort of windfall for the public investment, as well as a sort of public stake and public wealth and control. So um, just for the benefit of some of our listeners, um, with with regards to things like the, the social wealth funds um, and uh, the, the whole idea of sort of democratising um, these private companies... Um, has have have things like this been tried uh anywhere else in history anywhere else in the world right now um or is it would would you consider um some of the things you the commonwealth are proposing to be uh very revolutionary uh or is revolutionary not, not the term you would use um well so yeah it's interesting so i think um i think it's a sort of combination um of all of those strands in a way so on the one hand, yeah, I mean, a lot of these institutions, are, you know, social wealth funds exist in many countries, you know, many states in America, for example, that have social wealth funds, most famously Alaska, which pays out sort of universal basic dividend from it, but obviously sort of a whole, a whole host of other you know, countries. And most of those, in, in fairness, t- tend to be sort of quite resource heavy. Um, so places like Alaska, Norway with its oil fund, um, sort of Gulf states um, have very large ones, etc. But because of this macroeconomic moment where you've got sort of ability to borrow long and cheaply and the ability to buy up a broad range of assets at the same time, there's this sort of interesting confluence where we can sort of begin to sort of scale social capital um, at heights that will begin to make a difference in terms of transforming wealth, transforming sort of potentially sort of corporate governance as a result. And then on the sort of democratizing the company, again, you know, like all these things, you can sort of point to either sort of historical moments in the past or you can point to some elements of co-determination, uh, which is common in Europe and essentially means you know, rather than capital ruling the firm, you have Labour has guaranteed rights within the constitution of the firm. So it has rights, you know, it sits, it has sort of allocated membership on the board and it has sort of, you know, guaranteed rights in some sort of strategic decision making. But nonetheless, if you, if you layer up the sort of ecology of rights, sort of new forms of social ownership, new forms of, you know, democratic rights for Labour as a whole, but also sort of claims on the governance of the company from society, from sort of environmental and sort of, you know, even supply chains and customers, etc., then it obviously does add up to sort of quite a sort of deep restructuring of the institution of the company. I mean, whether it's, I mean, to some degree, yes, it would be you know, revolutionary to organise the firm as a social sort of institution rather than primarily sort of an institution organised by capital. But I think there's, there's two things there. One, I think, you know, politically, I think part of the challenge is to sort of present, you know, the radical as common sense and necessarily so, given, you know, the true extreme is the status quo, which generates low productivity, high inequality, you know, environmental collapse on a scale which threatens our our future. But then I think the other thing which, you know, um, people like Eric Olinwright, um, in and also sort of, you know, more more recently, sort of people like Will Davis at, at Goldsmiths have pointed to the fact that, you know, it might seem revolutionary in some ways to organise the company under social control or for purposes beyond just sort of maximising wealth for shareholders. But actually, there's a whole host of institutions within sort of the capitalist economy, business institutions that aren't necessarily capitalist. So, you know, you think of 
the family firm that actually isn't run in a way to maximize profits. It's actually organized on quite different rhythms. You think of sort of, you know, sort of cooperatives, mutuals, there's a whole host of them. Now, all of these models in, in their way have sort of things that we need to sort of explore and sort of unpick around hierarchies around potential injustices but i think the point is that the economy is in some ways already more pluralistic and therefore than we think and therefore you know yes in some ways it might be sort of a deep restructuring and it's a radical challenge but at the same time there's lots of resources of hope and institutional innovation already existing that we can prefigure and scale to sort of add up to a much more coherent institutional turn in the economy uh just thinking about something you said there about like sort of different types of companies one of the things we were thinking about was um for companies which aren't headquartered in the uk uh how how is this sort of stuff going to work so say how do you democratize power structures if the uh, company headquarters is in japan or germany for example yeah i mean it's it's an interesting strategic um challenge and it's certainly one that both speaks to i mean obviously very particularly sort of things like company law company ownership but i think it's a sort of a wider you know, sort of structural challenge for, you know, whether it's the soft left, the sort of, you know, whichever element of the sort of um, sort of landscape is thinking through their agenda. This is an issue that needs to be sort of thought through um, in the round and not just for this question. But I think for sort of, you know, sort of international non-UK domiciled companies, I think A, sort of, you know, ultimately they will still have some form of legal structure registered and operating in the UK. Now, of course, you know, does that mean that there's sort of, an, sort of an empire of law in sort of Pistor's words to sort of try and evade, escape and maximise wealth capital holders and therefore sort of preclude the opportunity for democratic sort of governance within the UK of these institutions. Yeah, of course, like, of course, they'll, they'll try and evade it. But nonetheless, we do have sort of potential levers, potential sort of options. So that's one thing. So I think we, sh- we shouldn't undercount that. You know, people will still be registered at companies housed. You know, there will still be sort of fundamental laws of, you know, company law, of corporate governance, etc. being applied here. Two, I think there's a sort of, you know, it clearly will also require, like, you know, everything, whether it's climate change, whether it's, you know, taxation, whether it's sort of company ownership and sort of uh, labour rights, etc., will require sort of, I think, more effective forms of international Coordination, uh, I think, will be absolutely key to that. I think, sort of, you know, sort of a left internationalism, I think, has to sort of think through some of these questions, um, you know, send to them in terms of our strategic sort of positioning. I think, sort of, the third thing might well be like, you know, who knows where exactly we will emerge, um, and it won't be a sort of binary. Okay, we've, we've emerged from COVID and we're back to where we were, but who knows what the sort of state the flow the sort of level of globalization will be after all of this in terms of the depth of supply chains the sort of level of financial and economic integration and so i think that you know it might well be that we emerge in this this sort of problem is is maybe maybe less so but i think the uk so political economy is you know particularly internationalized and so i think it is worth thinking about it but i do think again like you know we do have quite a lot of leverage um in terms of the legal structures in terms of incorporation in terms of sort of our ability to sort of um, impose um, and to negotiate through the law a new settlement. Um, so I think, um, in terms of company law, corporate governance, you know, I think we should, we can be bold there. And in terms of ownership, um, you know, sort of social wealth fund, there's, there's nothing to sort of inhibit the UK sort of creating something like that to scale social wealth in the here and now. Uh, even if you know, sort of these companies are necessarily based in Japan. You could potentially sort of buy off the sort of Nikkei or you could buy off sort of 
NASDAQ assertions of assets or whatever it might be. So I think I think it's absolutely a sort of really important, interesting challenge to raise, but I think that sort of you know it shouldn't inhibit us from sort of thinking through deep structural transformation, but it does, you know, demand us to try and think through both the sort of nitty-gritty of the policy, but I think also sort of the political strategy of how how you sort of uh, try and make sort of progress in this sort of highly internationalised economy, albeit with the caveat of COVID potentially sort of changing that context significantly. And thinking about COVID as well, um, one of the types of company that's been um, particularly affected would be something like airlines and just thinking about airlines more generally. So what is the sort of potential there? Um, if we're taking um, a share in airlines, then what is the long-term potential for sort of reshaping what they do in less environmentally destructive directions? But at the same time, presumably, when, um, if it's democratic ownership, workers are going to want to preserve jobs. And so, so what's the what's the um, potential there? Yeah, so I think I think when we sort of think about um, public interventions, public bailouts, and there's a whole host of people who have done interesting. Work on this, uh, you know, apart from ourselves, people like IPPR, Claire's, uh, NEF, um, the, the Democracy Collaborative, a US based organization, have all been thinking through, like, uh, High Pace Center have been thinking through, like, how do you use uh, public interventions, um, which again speaks to that point that you can't separate the economic from the political and the sort of the public private binary is kind of a false one. We need to think about the public private as a sort of economics of, and social partnership. But so I think a lot of people have been thinking through this, and I think it, it, it's important to be sort of you know trying to be specific to the sector and the nature of why are these companies requesting a bailout? Is it because they've been excessively financialized? Their business models are deeply extractive, and you know that's why they're in crisis. Now, in fairness, the scale of the crisis is such that you know most companies, even if they've been sort of performing sort of better, quote unquote, would be. Um, over the last decade or so, would be nonetheless under extreme pressure. But I think there's a sort of question of, like, why are they requesting this? What is their sort of strategic position in the economy? How are they relating to sort of questions or, you know, the the preeminent question of decarbonising rapidly and justly and moving to a new sort of um, economy centred on sort of care and sort of justice? Um, and you know, therefore, that will then speak to certain sort of different interventions we might, which might go from anything from democratic ownership with a sort of you know public ownership of the entire sort of you know sector or company, if it uh, you know in certain sort of cases, and using that strategic leverage to drive big structural transformation. So thinking here of say you know public ownership of uh, fossil fuel uh, companies and using that to sort of drive and manage transition in a way that sort of a market led transition is is likely to be you know too slow, too bumpy, too unjust, through to, you know, growing public wealth and using a state to drive uh, corporate transformation, but at the same time using, you know, the levers such as regulation. I think that's where something like aviation bailouts come in. Um, So aviation is a sector which is expected, of all the sectors, it's the only sector really expected and allowed within current climate plans to basically continue growing the scale of emissions up to 2050, uh, which obviously in some ways far too late for an ambitious sort of uh, net zero target for the UK. And so there's a chance to say, okay, well, we can use this public stake to sort of, you know, guarantee job security in the first instance for a lot of workers who are sort of, you know, uh, at deep risk here, recognise that the sector is going to play a role uh, and an important role post-crisis, but that actually there's a series of things here 
both around sort of you know the level of wealth extraction by you know very wealthy owners like sort of you know sort of the you know, the EasyJet founder family Richard Branson etc cetera, etc cetera, who not only extract a lot of wealth but also you know sort of tax havens potentially you know, UK Virgin Isles etc you know sort of someone um, you know sort of from uh, tax justice UK could sort of speak to that much better but um, you know there's a whole host of potential issues there but then I think the other the overwhelming one in some ways in the airline sector is how can you sort of manage demand to really bring back projected demand and indeed current demand down towards a level that is compatible with the 1.5 degree um, sort of pathway which is quite distinct to frankly what the airline sector uh, by its own accounts would drive us towards and then how do you manage that sort of management of demand in a way that's fair and just and doesn't just mean that sort of the wealthiest in the world get to sort of monopolize um, a managed um, aviation sector. So I think, you know, it, it's horses for courses to some degree, the type of intervention, whether it's of nationalization wholesale and using that for big strategic shift, whether it's, you know, minority but important stake, whether it's sort of, um, you know, sort of loan type conditions, which is sort of you know, more effective than the current government schemes, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. So I think it, do, it does depend on the sector and what type of outcomes you're trying to drive and what are the levers you're trying to drive as a result. But sort of clearly ownership at various scales can be a key part of that solution during sort of COVID crises sort of responses. Just uh, quickly, while, while we're on the subject of airlines, um, you, you talked about um, getting demand uh, for air travel down to the level that we need it um, to help combat the climate crisis. Um, some would argue that coronavirus itself uh, is that way um, and is bringing... Um, demand down to the necessary level um but the key question of course is how sustainable is it slash is it likely to be sustainable um and i suppose if um people were suddenly put off flying on mass that would make your job a lot easier by this um but um what do you think is what do you think is likely? Do you think when we come out the other end of this crisis that people are going to want to return to similar levels of um air travel and polluting activities that existed pre-COVID-19? Or do you think people are going to look at, uh, you know, the number of articles and um, images of like, oh, uh, here's how much cleaner air is in these cities. Oh, look, you can see, you know, fish in Venice, whatever it was, um, when it was happening. Um, do, do 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 you think people are going to be more swayed by the pre-existing um, positive environmental side effects of slowing down air travel or do you think people are going to be more compelled to go back to a, a pre-COVID-19 sort of situation, in which case we would need the kind of structural changes that you were talking about? What's your sense of that? So my sense is, and I think it's really, you know, it's kind of in some ways the key question uh, facing us right now, and my sense would be that you know, all crises are sort of undetermined and how they're resolved and in what direction depends on politics, upon the mobilisation of power, upon sort of this articulation of ideas and the coherence of sort of social, economic and political coalitions behind them. So I think in some ways we simply don't know. So so to take one example, so... Um, you, know, you pointed towards uh, you mentioned the sort of you know sort of the, the that meme that was going around being like oh look at all these look at all these nice clean waterways and all the rest yeah, in Venice yeah. and other places but then that was also kind of the sort of tagline for that was sort of what was it, it was kind of um, 
something something about like coronavirus uh, you know humanity is the disease coronavirus is the cure or something is that right something, something mm. like that Some, something yeah 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 sort of eco-fascist so exactly so you can kind of see it's exactly the sort of you know meme of eco-fascism of sort of you know sort of both you know it kind of excludes and sort of you know sort of silences the fact that actually like you know environmental collapse is both sort of driven by a sort of you know sort of capitalist forms of development but then also it excludes sort of who are the main sort of drivers of that? Who are the sort of key people? And sort of, you know, makes it sort of universal humanity. And then it also obviously sort of, you know, sort of has a sort of fairly sort of eco-fascist impulse behind some of its sort of treatments and sort of sense of hierarchies and sort of, it's basically a very problematic phrase. So you can kind of see on the one hand, it's like, oh, well, maybe there's going to be a sentiment that people would be like, hey, wouldn't it be nice to have lower polluting cars? Why don't we have more electric buses rather than our cities clogged up by this, that or the other? Why don't we think about how, you know, sort of, the company is generating vast reward for a few, but we can actually repurpose it to be a sort of generative form of enterprise, all these other things. But at the same time, you can kind of see, actually, on the flip side, disaster capitalists saying, hey, this is a great opportunity to mobilise private equity, hedge funds, etc., etc., to accelerate a huge upward extraction of wealth, a huge concentration of power, in which, say, Amazon is the last universal utility or public, well, not public infrastructure, but the last of digital infrastructure left standing in sort of large sectors of the economy and the high streets completely gutted even more so than already you know or we could see something quite different emerging and i think that is exactly the sort of political challenge the sort of you know the conflict that will be the political heart of of covid which is obviously itself you know something that's emerged out of sort of you know the vat of sort of capitalism of sort of global sort of chains of production and sort of you know deep integration and sort of you know it travelled through the air, etc. In many ways, so it's, it's completely bound up in sort of our present moment uh, and sort of economic system, rather than some, something that sits outside of it. So I think all these things kind of are entangled very deeply, and the resolution could well be, you know, hey, look, we want to sort of, uh, you know, the sort of the forms of solidarity, of mutual aid, of you know, lower environmental sort of stress, etc., um, etc. Et you know, sort of leisure, etc may well be things that we want to sort of, you know, in quite different ways, but try and sort of retain post-crisis. Or it could be the sort of, the sort of you know, disaster capitalists and the sort of desire to kickstart back to normalcy will be so strong that it's actually like, well, gut regulation, gut sort of environmental protections, we just need to get sort of the deficit down, austerity 2.0, we just need to get unemployment down, etc., etc., etc. So all these things are sort of going to be, I think, quite tightly contested, quite open to different levels of interpretation, quite open to sort of reconfiguration. So I think it's a sort of, you know, in, you know, this strange moment of both sort of physical, you know, immobility and sort of, you know, forced passivity in terms of like just staying at home, but at the same time sort of deeply volatile political conjuncture that can sort of break out in a sort of whole host of different ways. Um, so I think, yeah, we shall see. And I think, I think sort of, you know, on that specific of the airlines, well, I think, I mean, you know, I think it's about sort of systemic transition, and I think clearly that that section in particular is such a sort of growth point within current plans for sort of you know design of the future that I think we need to think seriously about how we can constrain that demand in a sort of fair way. But I think we need to think about sort of um, that in the round, so you know, around sort of transforming mobility and interconnection as a whole, but also about sort of a whole host of other things. So I think essentially, you know, it's a conjuncture that really could be broken out in very different many ways. And I think obviously there's a lot of conversation around how this is going to be a sort of permanent restructuring of capitalism, a permanent sort of 
break from you know, neoliberal norms, etc. That may well be the case, but it could also be a sort of a doubling down, sort of you know a much worse, more unequal, and sort of brutal um, sort of economy and societies that we merge out into. So it's all all in some ways playful, or not playful, struggleful. And sort of talking about that political dimension, obviously the leadership of the Labour Party has uh, changed since we last spoke and uh, obviously the previous leadership um, did things sort of such as commissioning the alternative models of ownership report um, so I wondered sort of what your sense is of the new leadership's thoughts on democratic public ownership and also with Labour finding itself in opposition for the foreseeable future um, to what extent um, aspects of um, this are politically achievable in the shorter term. Um, so, so yeah. So on the, I mean, I think to take them in the sort of reverse order you asked. Though, so I think on the sort of um, time horizons, I, mean, I think obviously you've got this sort of very strange moment in which sort of you know under sort of a sort of Tory government, but also not not just sort of uh, a Tory government, but like economies around the world market relations have been suspended, you know, sort of large parts of the economy have been sort of nationalised, taken onto the public balance sheet, um, you know, sort of the the, po- the point of the economy of sort of, you know, sort of expanding capital accumulation has kind of actually been sort of decentered towards, you know, anchoring public health um, as the sort of key goal. So we're, we've seen some, some deep ruptures. So, you know, the plasticity of institutions and sort of, uh, you know, configurations, I think, you know, who who knows what what will emerge out of this as the new norm, and it might well be the sort of certain forms of, you know, public ownership, whether that's social infrastructures around care through, but through to you know more sort of formal things around, you know, sort of the railways retaining public ownership, whatever it might be. I think is up for grabs. I think the other thing about sort of the time horizon is that you know, it's obviously as you say, it's, uh, a lot has changed uh, since we last spoke, including the uh, sort of uh, Labour leadership. Um, and I think, for some ways, you know, in some ways, there may well be a sort of healthy moment of you know, sort of a slight decentering of the Labour Party because there's no election for, sort of for the broad left right now because there's no, um, you know, sort of election sort of coming up anytime soon uh, at a national level. But there are, you know, important uh, local elections next year at Holyrood. Um, so sort of Scottish elections are going to sort of parliamentary elections are going to be absolutely. Um, critical, but then I think so. There's a sense of a like organising local power, organising amongst sort of councils, etc. But I think also sort of you know non Labour Party based um, organising activities, right? Anti racist struggles, climate struggles, trade unions, sort of democratisation, a whole host of things. So I think a that could be sort of you know potentially potentially a healthy sort of expansion out, so almost a, a sort of exhalation, um, which would be interesting. And I think that frankly will then. Sort of speak to the first point, uh, your first question of like, well, where does this sit? Because I think it's sort of more uh, you know, diffuse, but sort of mobilised. Um, left can also then help, and you know, left within the Labour Party, organised left within the Labour Party, including the soft left, etc., um, can put pressure uh, um, on the Labour leadership um, to sort of honour their sort of commitment to common ownership, which is obviously one of the key pledges um, in Keir Starmer's um, sort of 10 point plan or 10-point pledge um, during the leadership in which sort of, there was a commitment to some of the sort of core utilities. Um, I think in some ways the interesting challenge will be can common ownership extend beyond sort of just, you know, um, mail and some of the other sort of uh, areas that have been pledged but towards more 
you know, sort of a more expansive democratization, uh, which is partly what the alternative models of ownership spoke to. And I think, you know, uh, Annalise uh, Dodds um, is a strong uh, you know, proponent of and committed to the cooperative movement, as is Johnny Reynolds, etc. So I think um, there's some interesting, you know, encouraging signs there, I think, of taking on board and you know, potentially through slightly different framing or language, but taking on board the sort of core essence of an agenda for not just common ownership, which, you know, uh, there's been an interesting debate about what exactly that means. But I think, you know, a sort of expansive sense of common ownership to include democratisation of not just sort of the set of sectors, but actually sort of the thoroughgoing democratisation of economic life through the expansion of cooperatives, mutuals, social enterprise, community business, etc., etc., in which wealth and control are sort of pooled and sort of democratically exercised. But also that sort of point, going back to the early point about actually also rewiring the rules of the company and thinking you know about sort of pluralizing company ownership so that you sort of have a sort of much richer more pluralistic ecology of institutional forms in the economy operating um, and then i think the final thing that would be interesting to sort of see how they develop and again sort of you know the coronavirus sort of has exposed some of these things is how far um this sort of agenda around which is some of the work commonwealth and democracy collaborative are working on how far some of the sort of new frontiers of, of democratic ownership uh, will be anchored into the agenda in the years ahead, whether that's digital infrastructure around sort of universal access to full fibre, um, which obviously, you know, the crisis has kind of really sort of put a spotlight on how connectivity is a sort of human right in this day and age, but through to things like, you know, what's the future of IP as a sort of key site to sort of value extraction, you know, should public funded research be pulled into an IP commons rather than sort of siloed and corralled behind sort of uh, IP property regimes. So there's a whole host of interesting things where I think sort of the mobilisation articulation of demands and then sort of the sort of good faith engagement on both sides I guess um, can potentially be a sort of lead to fruitful extension of the agenda. But I think you know sort of all this is to play for and uh, you know sort of we, we shall see I guess we shall see. Um, and talking a little bit about leadership, actually, you recently did a Twitter thread about um, the law and political economy movement in the context of Keir Starmer's election as leader of the party. And uh, James uh, Meadway has written for us about Labour's legal turn. Um, can you explain a little bit about this? What potential is there for Labour? Yeah, so the, I mean, so the law and political economy movement, you know, there are sort of... Um, you know, so people who are sort of advancing that agenda here in, in many ways, but um, it, I guess it's most coherent in the US in which there's a very good blog called Law and Political Economy, um, lpe.com or something, but if you Google Law and Political Economy blog, um, people can find it. And I suppose at its core is this point, which again relates to the company, but I think it's much more wide than that, is that sort of... Um, the law is obviously you know, deeply political and is completely bound up, legal institutions, legal structures, uh, is completely bound up in sort of how our political economy is organised, how wealth is produced, reproduced and distributed, how sort of hierarchies are in sort of embedded within sort of social institutions, economic institutions, how you know, sort of racial and sort of class injustices, which obviously intertwine, but also how they sort of reproduce through legal structures, how through legal forms of exclusion, how it embeds principles of competition over sort of cooperation, how coordinating rights in the economy, so who can organise what, are assigned and monopolised by capital via sort of legal sort of interventions. 
And so it's saying, well, if this of you know not just the economic but sort of, sort of social and the political is sort of constituted by law and politics as a sort of combination, how can we sort of prize open the box of law and sort of contest it um, as sort of you know not the only tool but one tool amongst others to sort of hardwire democratic and sort of, uh, sort of mutual sort of esteem into sort of social relationships um, as opposed to sort of what we what we have today um, and so it's a really, really interesting sort of movement um, in the US pistol who I mentioned um, people like Jed Purdy um, as well but there's a whole bunch of people who have doing, done really um, interesting things around that and so is this sort of, this sort of thread and sort of James's um, piece too I guess was sort of saying well you know and, I mean partly because obviously uh, Keir Starmer's uh, you know, one of his most well-known traits was that he was a sort of you know, very successful lawyer but, um, but also you can kind of see how how this agenda could cash out uh, in the UK in which if we want to sort of reshape company structure and reshape sort of uh, coordinating rights sort of so, you know, extend social control rather than sort of uh, private sort of dominion I guess over the economy you know, you can kind of see an agenda developing around how you would say reform the Companies Act of 2006, which in some ways is, you know, it's obviously it's a very long piece of legislation, but it kind of encodes into sort of um, you know, the sort of fabric of the company, who has rights, who has duties, who has sort of you know power essentially, and sort of you know embeds both sort of a particular form of shareholder primacy. I mean, there's some debate over the extent to which it does, but embeds certain forms of shareholder primacy and embeds sort of the maximization of shareholder value into sort of the core duty imposed on a sort of um, director, etc. So you can kind of see, A, an agenda around, like, well, let's rewrite that to sort of democratise the company or sort of at least sort of reframe and decenter the shareholders, sort of the key sort of uh, stakeholder within the company. But then also things like, you know, um, alongside some mobilisation of public investment on sort of, you know, unprecedented scales, could new legal duties be imposed on companies? Could sort of specific sort of legal interventions be imposed on high carbon intensive sectors etc etc sort of to be an accompaniment to a wider sort of green new deal style um agenda could you know can the law be used and sort of um the society of labor lawyers did a really interesting um set of sort of recommendations um before the sort of 2019 general election which i think you know i think you can see clear read across into some of their um interventions and some of labor's 20 point plan for sort of labour rights, I think it was, um, around collective bargaining and sort of, uh, rights from day one for all workers, etc. So you can kind of see how the law can be used for that. I think it's important to then also caveat that the law and political economy, you know, we should recognise, of course, that the law can be, you know, is itself a very political sort of institution and form, can be and is often, you know, encoded through sort of very conservative and problematic, uh, problematically hierarchical or undemocratic forms, etc., etc. So I think, you know, I think... It needs a sort of certain sceptical and critical approach to the law, um, but I, you know, it was just a sort of hypothesis that what you could potentially see, you know, in twenty twenty three or four or whatever it might be, when sort of Labour's I guess beginning to put more flesh on the bones, because realistically there probably won't be much flesh on the bones for the next manifesto for a while. But you can kind of see sort of reform of the Companies Act being a sort of key centre point in the way that, say, the Alternative Models of Ownership report was a key sort of articulation of mcdonaldism uh and sort of the sort of ambition of that agenda um so that that was kind of what that pointed towards um and how you know the sort of public and the private are inseparable how you know sort of economic institutions particularly the company but lots more sort of encoded 
and enabled by sort of legal but also sort of state interventions and therefore the question is not should we intervene it's we already do intervene it's are interventions creating generative equitable outcomes i'd argue clearly not and therefore can we think of the law as a social coding machine in a way and sort of re-engineer recode distributions of control coordination rights of you know the purpose within the economy and there's uh, some conversation at the moment about the government rolling out um, bailouts for businesses who didn't don't pay their fair share or use offshore accounts or, or um, similar. And it's sort of been done in Denmark and France. Um, do you see potential in this sort of idea? Yeah, absolutely. I think um, you know it seems like you know common sense. It seems like there's you know it's being done elsewhere, as you mentioned, and I think it'll be done more and more. Um, where it seems just you know bizarre and unfair and you know a whole host of other things if companies are still paying out very large um, bonuses uh, to executives still paying out very large dividends etc 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 to companies while also either putting workers on furlough also sort of taking large public subsidy or support etc etc so I think absolutely that seems like a sort of you know basically a no-brainer really I think it has to be thought through um and, you know, there might be objections that, oh, this is, you know, we had to pay out our dividends because, you know, it was, you know, it was, it was, it, it was legally obliged to us, to us as shareholders. But, I mean, obviously, you, could, you know, these are exceptional times and, you know, suspension, et cetera, et cetera, of these things seems just a sort of sensible thing. And to us, the other thing, I wouldn't be surprised if the government itself did it, let alone the Labour Party, because I think, um, you know, it's got, it, it can sort of, I think it would, there's an intuitive common sense that I think cuts across party lines that, during a time of crisis, it seems peculiar to be paying out really big bonuses to executives and sort of, you know, hundreds of millions of pounds from shareholders um, rather than using sort of marginal corporate earnings to be reinvested or to help you know, pay workers' wages or to sort of help safely mothball the company if you are sort of you know, drawing on public support. How is your book coming along, um, Matt? <laughs> your co-writing, if you wanted to talk a bit about that because um, it's sort of linked with a lot of what we've been talking about yeah no it's um yeah good 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 chance to sort of plug the first plug uh yeah so it was um, <laughs> actually yeah exactly uh, um so it's with uh laurie label langton um of ippr and other sort of patches uh, and it's called beyond barbarism uh, manifested for a planet on fire um with Verso, it's not not entirely sure because of COVID um, when it's going to be coming out. Potentially late autumn, but it might might very well be delayed um, in part because it'd be hard to do a book tour if we're all in lockdown. Um, but yeah, essentially um, the manuscripts in etc. Um, with a sort of tweak uh, for COVID, but it's it's you know exploring some of the themes um, we've touched upon here, which is. It's a, we're facing a sort of deep systems crisis, um, sort of most particularly in environmental collapse and climate crisis, which are conjoined but slightly distinct, which is linked to sort of a sort of extractive global political economy, which obviously is also generating in a crisis of security, in inequalities of sort of uh, sorry, crisis of inequality, crisis of sort of the ability to produce sustainable sort of plenty in a way that sort of people can live uh, free and sort of secure lives. And that, that requires sort of very deep institutional restructuring at scale, which you know, is both the Green New Deal, both, most obviously, but I think has to go further and beyond that, not least because, you know, the sort of political projects attached to the Green New Deal now look like 
you know, at least in this stage, will not be being implemented and institutionalised anytime soon. And so the sort of crisis will only magnify and compound before any sort of eventuality where we can begin to sort of implement sort of transformative responses. And so it sort of kind of charts both sort of the scale of collapse and the sort of the scale of, you know, the under-recognised still in some ways scale of, of collapse, and not just of climate crisis, but of these sort of intersections of natural systems collapse, of biodiversity collapse, of water tables drying out, of desertification at scale, et cetera, et cetera, which sort of adds up to sort of a fairly um, grim picture, and then, but then tries to articulate both sort of deep institutional rearrangements we would need that can sort of extend social control, extend sustainability into sort of everyday life, and that's about you know, rewiring, socialising sort of finance at scale around democratizing business and sort of repurposing it around sort of reimagining and recentering uh, work in the economy in particular centering around care and nourishing work and sort of forms of sort of egalitarian relationships at the heart uh, there are a whole host of other things reimagining urban life etc so yeah uh, more on that soon um, and then it ends with sort of kind of what given the political moment we're in is the sort of the pathway to move from a sort of economy and politics um that has generated the crisis towards one that can be a more generative, sustainable, and sort of democratic future. Um, so yeah, so that that was actually yeah. So it's it'll be out at some, it'll be out at some point. I don't know when, so I can't, I can't tell you when, but it, it will be out. Um, so yeah, that's that. And another episode of the Social Review Podcast draws to a close. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, and thank you so much to Matthew Lawrence for coming on and talking to us uh, about his work and the overall work of Commonwealth. As he mentioned, uh, they've put out 38 reports in their first year of operations, which is uh, insane. Uh, and you can read them on their website, on their very slick and cool website. Um, so do go over to uh, common-wealth.co.uk uh, and have a flick through some of those uh, very, very interesting stuff. Otherwise, once again, thanks so much for listening. Keep well, wash your hands, all that sort of thing. Um, And you will hear us again very soon. Thanks very much. Goodbye. (laughs) 